As Rod said, I'll be speaking on disappointment today, but I first want to talk about uh, something else, which is part of what I want to share with you guys today, and that is perspective. Perspective. We all need perspective. We need to learn perspective on life, so don't we? We all need perspective. The year is 1939 and a little boy is born to a young married couple. Cue the Scott family because we have Jasmine over here chatting away to her husband <laughs> and Jasmine is a nurse. Okay, And this young lady back in 1939, was also a nurse. And this young man, the father of this little infant, was a trained teacher. And uh, war was declared in 1939, a world war, World War II. And this uh, trained teacher went off to officers college and became an officer and served in Borneo and in New Guinea. So can you imagine, I bet this guy can, how hard it would be to hug your wife goodbye and to shower your little boy with kisses before going off to war not knowing what was ahead how hard that would have been. Yet that's what happened and uh, this officer uh, lived in Hobart with his wife and uh, there were many, many Australians which went off to war just in the same way and 7,000 Australians served and died in those two conflicts, 7,000 Australians. Perspective, guys, perspective. Well, this little boy grew up, the war ended in 1943, and the father came home. They were a family again. Good story, hey? They were a family again. One week after his return home, the little boy ran up to his mother, pulled on her dress and said, Mummy, 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 Mummy! Yes, what is it? When is that strange man going away? Speaking of his father, this four-year-old boy did not know his dad. Did not know his dad perspective. It says here that a man by the name of Jasper Olaf Thompson Goulet, good name huh, was born in Lansdowne Crescent in Hobart. Some of us know where that is. In 1943 he died at the age of 56. 
Who were his immediate family? Well, Jasper was the son of Joseph Goulet. Rings no bells? Joseph and Lilius Goulet also had a child. And her name was Lorna Lilius Goulet. Uh, I want to read you out to the names of the brothers of uh, this man because this is a death notice and it says so um, Jasper was the son of Joseph Goulet but he also had siblings and you need to know their names. His name's Jasper, right? Remember that. His brother's name was Garnet. He had another brother, Onyx. And they had a sister, Ruby, all Goulet's. And so now you've been advised that the most popular boys or girls' name for 2024 will be Onyx Roy. What do you think? It just clicks, I reckon. Onyx. So that was the family. And some of these uh, people were auntie and uncles of Lorna Lilius Goulet. And so it was Lorna that married this now then captain uh, in the army and they had a little boy. I want to read you a, another notice. Uh, it's talking about uh, the late Mr. J. Goulet in Hobart. To prove that I'm just not making this up, this was published in the newspaper, which you can have a look at later. Uh, I'll read that out in a moment. But can you imagine what it was like having to go to war without email, without mobile phones without any understanding of what the future held. Perspective. We all need perspective in our own lives. And yet I'm still amazed at the logistics of even in wartime, probably through aeroplanes like what Matthew was talking about, there were people delivering mail, delivering love letters across the other side of the world, were there not? Love letters, precious love letters. This lady received quite a few letters from her husband and they might have started off like this. To my sweetheart. There would have been all sorts of soppy messages in between which uh, I'd be too red-faced and embarrassed to share. But they'd be sharing their love and their devotion for one another, would they not? And then it would have ended something like this. Love from you finish. In those days, it wouldn't have been reams of paper that could be printed off and sent off halfway across the world. It would have been very thin paper which had to be kept very light because the planes had to be light to go. Otherwise I'd run out of fuel if everyone was just printing off reams and reams of paper. Can you imagine how precious 
the, this correspondence was, going both ways over that four-year period across the world. Do you think this woman read this letter once and said, oh, that was a nice letter. He seems to be having a good time over there. No way. No way. This woman would have poured over these letters. She would have read them 10 times, 20 times, and they would have been precious, would they not? Do you think she then went, well, that's the end of that. Hopefully he sends me another letter. No way. She would have kept that letter. It was prized. She may never have seen her beloved again. Precious, precious love letters going both ways. Do you know we have a precious love letter from our Father in heaven? been compiled for us and we have it in our own language, we have it in our own house. What are we going to do with it? Leave it on the shelf? I think not. Now I understand, because I've used this excuse myself, I'm not really a reader. I'll wait till the movie comes out. That's the sort of guy I am. I'll wait till the movie comes out. I'm not really a reader. But do you know, this is a precious precious love letter. We're not going to not read the letter. We're not going to not read it a hundred times, a thousand times, because it's the most precious letter that's ever been compiled, that's ever been authored. And it's from our loving Heavenly Father. And he wants us to know what he thinks of us. He thinks a great deal of us. This death notice is a funeral notice and it uh, reads this way. The funeral of Mr. Joseph Goulet, who died at his home, Augusta Road, yesterday at the age of 86 years, it took place at Cornelian Bay Cemetery today. The late Mr. Goulet was the fourth son of the late Mr. David Goulet, who came to Hobart from Leith, Scotland, about 1852. So we're going back. This is part of his lineage. And we went and he went into business partnership with Mr. Thomas Horn. He also undertook several bridge building contracts in New South Wales. Mr. Joseph Goulet joined his father's business on completion of his education and later accompanied him on trading expeditions to various states. Afterwards, he spent two years at sea and then entered the office of Mr. W. Oates, a timber merchant. Tempted by the Heemskirk boom, who knows where Heemskirk, Tasmania is? Hands up. We've got some people here. We've got someone at the back of the room. Heemskirk is on the west coast of Tasmania, and the boom that speaks of here was a tin mining boom. He was tempted by that boom. He opened a store at Granville Harbour on the west coast for a time. He traded at Granville and Trial Harbours, then returned to Hobart, where he re-entered the business of Mr Oates. This business was later taken over by Goulet and Leah. After having spent 59 years in the timber business, Mr Goulet retired 12 months ago. 
He was a devoted member of the Anglican Church and for many years was a warden at St John's Church, Newtown. He was a member of the Buckingham Bowling Club. Mr Goulet was married in 1877 to Miss Lilius Jessen of Hobart who died eight years ago. He is survived by two sons, Mr Jasper Goulet and Mr Roy Goulet. Another son, Mr Garnet Goulet, perished in the Miss Hobart aeroplane disaster in 1934. Don't expect anyone to know much about the Miss Hobart aeroplane disaster of 1934, but you can look it up. History. History. Perspective is what we all need to learn. We all need to learn lots of things, don't we? not just perspective. We all need to learn lots of things. Some people think they learnt to drive when they got their licence. They learnt to drive. They didn't learn to drive when they got their licence. They may have learnt in the following five years how to drive, but getting a licence doesn't mean you're a good driver. They had to learn how to drive, didn't they? And we were the same. In my mum's day, you didn't learn to drive, you just took a trip up to Oatlands, talked to the copper and said, I need a licence. And they said, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, we're going to have to sit you in the car and you go around the block and then they say, OK, 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 here's your licence. But nowadays it's not so easy, right? Nowadays you've got to do a test. And I think young people think they get through the written test and they think, I've done it. And they go, no, 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 here's your L plates. L plates? What's this? Well, you're going to learn how to drive now that you know the road rules. So it's not merely about learning the rules, is it? We've got to learn how to be obedient to the rules. Is that right? Even the scripture says Jesus learnt obedience. And you think, well, hang on, that doesn't sound quite right. He's God. He's the son of God. He's perfect. He never was disobedient. How did he have to learn obedience? He had to learn obedience by doing it, by not just knowing it. He had to be obedient to going all the way to the cross. It was a terrible thing, even in the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus, when he went to his disciples, his friends, the people that he spent three years with, he was in agony. He was in torture of what he was going through and what he was about to endure. And he relied on his friends. He said, please pray for me. And you can imagine the disciples. They would have said, yep, yep, we'll pray for you. Our father... They were asleep. They were asleep. True, they were tired, but they were asleep. We need to learn lots of things. We need to learn perspective on life. We need to understand these people that have gone through life, that have trusted in Jesus. We can learn a lot from them, but even Jesus had to learn obedience, and we need to learn obedience by doing it, not just knowing about it. The young child, that little boy, 
was four years old when his father came home from war. Four years old and how he would have embraced that child. How he would have embraced that child. Well, that little boy grew up. And guess what? He's still alive. He's still alive. This lady that I spoke of, the nurse who had this little boy, it was the man that I was reading about. She's this man, Jasper Goulet's daughter. And Joseph Goulet, who I read about, is her grandfather. And even this woman's great-grandson is still alive today. Great-grandson. His name is Austin Mark Glover, my grandson. So this woman was my grandmother and we read about this Christian man who was known as a servant of God, was her grandfather. Perspective. We need to understand that God is in control of all things. This um, serviceman was Mervyn, Captain Mervyn Henry Charles Glover. Big, long name. My grandfather. We don't know whether he knew the Lord. It didn't seem evident to me. And when I became a Christian 31 years ago, I wondered, is there anyone, is there anyone that knows God in my family lineage? Then I came across Joseph Goulet. And so now we see that God is at work. God is at work in the world. He is doing and accomplishing his will. So Joseph was a man of God. His granddaughter is my grandmother. And we trust that my grandmother's great-great-grandson will also walk in God's ways because that's the way his mother and father are raising him. So we have an amazing love letter and we need to be in it whether we call ourselves readers or not because it's the word of God. I have here Joseph Goulet's Bible. I gave my grandmother, his granddaughter, a Bible. But she died and it looked untouched after her funeral. It was given back to me. It looked untouched. It was the same Bible that Kath and I had given her later in life. So you need to get into this book, get into this love letter, because the Bible that we bought my grandmother 
looked untouched, and it's precious. It's precious. So we all need perspective on life because we can all get discouraged, can't we? We can all be disappointed in life. Let's have a look at just a few things about disappointment. You've already got an idea in your mind of what disappointment looks like, haven't you? You can already sort of describe it to yourself. What is it? Disappointment really is unmet expectations that you have had. We expect certain outcomes, don't we, about various things. But we need to understand that many of those expectations are just plain unrealistic, right? Oops. I realise that the transitions uh, on my computer don't work to here. So, disappointment can also lead to frustration. We can be quite frustrated, bordering on angry. Angry. Why do we experience disappointment? Why is it we're God's children? Why is it that we and others experience disappointment? Well, here's one reason. Our expectations are not in line with God's plan or his timing. So we're all disappointed, but God says, well, that was never going to happen anyway. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't my timing. Sometimes we're disappointed because it's all about us, right? We're disappointed because we're let down, because we're hurt, because we're surprised by the outcome. Sometimes it's because of self-centeredness. And Kath mentioned uh, nostalgia as well. Nostalgia, where does that fit in? Well, sometimes what we do in our mind, we play tapes back and we try to look back on our lives and sometimes we think, oh, I wish it was like it used to be. I wish it was like the good old days. Remember the good old days? In 20 years' time, you'll be talking about today being the good old days. Okay, we always um, play a video in our own mind and we think the good old days, the good old days, if only they'd come back. But they weren't necessarily the good old days. We are a bit romantic about the whole idea, I think, about times and events. We must stop reconstructing the past in our brains. Focus on the present. Don't worry about last month, last year, last decade. Think about the present and what actions you can take which will produce growth in you. You know what? We sculpt expectations in our own minds. So who's to blame when it doesn't come about? We are. What are the effects of disappointment on us? Because it can be eating us. Just like what David spoke about last week, he spoke about unforgiveness. The Bible also talks a lot about bitterness, doesn't it? Bitterness, unforgiveness, disappointment. What does it do? It eats us from the inside. We can lose our peace, the very peace 
that God has wrought, we can just give it away. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're not a, a positive influence on other people when we're living in a state of disappointment. It's not others focused. What is it? It's self-focus. With whom can we become disappointed? There's, some, there's multiple answers there. We, it's basically people is the first one that comes to mind, isn't it? We can be disappointed in others. But let me flip that around. People can be disappointed in you too. Sometimes we can be disappointed in ourselves. We can say, oh, I'm better than this. What have I done this for again? And we can be disappointed in God. When we're disappointed in other people or people are disappointed in us, sometimes that's uh, affecting the relationship quite seriously. Sometimes it's because broken promises have resulted. When I'm disappointed in myself, I've got feelings of guilt. I'm thinking primarily about the things I've done or the things that I have not done, perhaps that I undertook to do and I've failed somebody. So there's guilt. And there's also shame. What is shame? Shame is thinking about the person that I've become. I'm not happy with the person that I've become or that I should be. I'm not that guy. So there's guilt. There's feelings of shame. And sometimes people are disappointed in God. People are disappointed in God. God's let me down, they say. Is that true? The God who knows all things, who made us in his own image, who has given us every good gift, who has spared not even his own son, but given him up freely for us. And yet, even in Jesus' day, you know, there were people that were disappointed in Jesus. They were disappointed in the outcome. Think about Cain and Abel in the Old Testament first up. Cain and Abel, they both had an understanding of God's requirements. But Cain gave, because he was a gardener, the best of all the vegetables and all of the, the, uh, the harvest, gave it to God as an offering. And it was good stuff. But his brother Abel gave of the fat portions. He gave an animal sacrifice, which was what God required. It was sort of like passive-aggressive giving from Cain. He was saying, I'm giving this to God. This is my hobby. This is what I'm good at. It was passive-aggressive because he knew in his heart of hearts that's not what God wanted. So he just gave what he thought was the right gift to give. And then later, he just dwelt on his disappointment. When God tried to make it right, he was not interested. He held on to his pride. In the New Testament, Mary and Martha were disappointed. For those of you who know the story, their brother Lazarus had died and they had sent 
pre-warning to go and get Jesus to do something about it. In plenty of time, the message was received. Jesus got the message, but he didn't act straight away. He hung around and then went back. And as a result of that, Mary and Martha knew who Jesus was and they said to him, you could have done something. You could have done something. If you'd come earlier, my, our brother would not have died. They were disappointed. What was Jesus' reaction? He was compassionate. He was compassionate. He understood. He even wept because of death. The old sin disease had taken its toll on this man, Lazarus. The Bible says they that sin, all those people who sin, it's going to result in death. You're going to die. The soul that sins, it shall die. So Mary and Martha were disappointed, but their disappointment turned into jubilation because Jesus resurrected their brother. Another group of people that were disappointed in Jesus' time were the disciples. Do you remember that? Do you remember that the disciples were disappointed? They put all sorts of things, obstacles in front of Jesus to test him, to see what would happen. Firstly, to see if he was the real deal. And then when they recognised, or perhaps still didn't recognise who he was, they chose to willfully ignore the signs that were in front of them. And the Pharisees threw an adulterous woman, a woman caught in adultery, before Jesus, the rabbi of the day, the one that had had all the attention. And they said, we'll get him this time. We'll get him this time. They said, what do you reckon about this woman? She was caught in adultery. You know the scriptures. What's got to happen? She's got to be killed. Jesus' response also of compassion as he was looking around the vast crowd they already had stones in their hands ready to go they were ready Jesus said you who is without sin cast the first stone at that they all just dropped their stones and in compassion Jesus said to her, go and leave your life of sin. So Jesus is compassionate. The disciples on the Emmaus road were also disappointed. They thought this Jesus was going to be their rescuer, their Messiah, who would lead up a great army. He was going to be a great warrior king. But it didn't turn out that way. It didn't turn out that way. Their precious Jesus, who they knew so well, had been brutally killed on a criminal's cross and he had been thrown into a tomb. So what did Jesus do? He showed compassion on them. He led them through the scriptures, stated the truth. He didn't argue with them. He just stated the truth. Prior to that, these disciples just heard what they wanted to hear and not what he actually said. Jesus had warned them three times 
that he was going to be dying before he went to the cross. We too can have wrong ideas about sin. As an aside, we can sometimes think, well, if I'm disappointed in myself and other people are disappointed in me, it's probably uh, a fair call to say that God is disappointed in me as well. God, we've hurt God. We've hurt God. And if we keep sinning and we call ourselves his children, we keep hurting God. That can be a thinking that's running around in our head. But let's just think about who God is again for a moment. God is the eternal God who knows all things. From before the creation of the world, he knew I was going to come into being. He knew all about Joseph Goulet. He knew all about his Bible. This is his Bible from the 1800s. He knew that although some of his lineage would not follow God, that I would come to know his son, Jesus. It's amazing. We've got to have perspective. We've got to understand that nothing takes God by surprise. He is sovereign. That means he's in complete control of everything. And you say, but what about, yep, he's in control of that as well. But what, yes, he's in control of that as well. So in that sense, where God looks down on all of human history from Genesis 1.1 right through to the end, which hasn't yet happened, the end of time, God knows about it all. Can he be really hurt as much as we think in our mind? Nothing takes him by surprise. Let's just think about that a little bit. But there are instances where... Uh, even Jesus uh, turned up all the tables uh, in the temple, if you'll remember, because he was disappointed and angry that the so-called religious leaders, the Jews and the Pharisees and all these people were turning the temple of God into a marketplace. So, yeah, God gets angry and God deals with certain things, but... Nothing comes to him as a surprise. Disappointments, this is my encouragement to you. Disappointments are a temporary situation. They're a temporary situation. They're only happening in this world that we're living in right now. Our hope, however, as Christians, is eternal. It's eternal. That's why it's so valuable and meaningful to us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. God has no wrath left for us, his children, because he gave it all to Jesus at the cross. That's why I think that we can't hurt God or we don't have to endure something because God knew about it all before the cross. He knew about it all. What can I expect of God? Knowing that we can do nothing, we can do nothing 
to cause God to love us more. Neither can we do anything that would cause God to love us less. One of my favourite verses is Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what can we expect from God? We expect that he understands. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who is being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Remembering that nothing we can do, nothing, can cause God to change. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. He knows no seasons of change. He has a single stance towards us. He loves us. He loves us. He wants us to have an abundant life. That's what his will for us is. He's not willing that any should perish anyone in the whole world. He's, that's not his will. He's not willing, but he gives us a free will that we decide. We decide whether we want to agree with God and submit to him or go our own way. The Bible says anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, not just a few. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Remember, God cannot act in any way that contradicts his nature. He will never fail us. He will never forsake us. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. There's fellowship there. What can I do to prevent disappointment? Hasn't worked for me too well so far, you might be saying to yourself. But there are things that we can do. I've got seven things. Firstly, we can align our will to God's. We can align our will to God's. When you ask, it says in James, do not you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you have on your pleasures. And Matthew 6 says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Number two, we can present our requests to God. We can all do this. In Philippians, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Number three is from Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. That's flawed. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Folks, 
Don't expect too much. Sometimes we expect too much. For instance, we should not put our trust in people, should we, to satisfy all our innermost needs? We sometimes make assumptions, we jump to conclusions. We need to recognise, we need to get it into perspective. We are all fallible, us and others. Five, choose not to be offended. Remember David covered this last week? Choose, make the conscious choice of your will not to be offended, even when people let you down. Instead, we should be flexible. So when things don't work out, we need to roll with the punches. We need to be flexible. We need to adapt. We need to accept the reality. We've also got a responsibility so that we don't disappoint other people. We have a responsibility. So don't make promises, especially ones that are out of your control, which is nearly everything. Every, nearly everything is out of our control, really. But rather, let your yes be yes and your no, no. And number seven, there's the most important thing for you and me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the pioneer. He's the founder. He's the author of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Feelings come and go. Keep them in check. I've got on this slide here, repent, repent. I believe that you remaining in a state of disappointment is a sin. It's not being, having the feeling of dis being disappointed, that's not a sin. I'm saying if you choose to remain in disappointment and keep playing the video in your mind, reconstructing the past in your head, you're not taking God seriously. You're not believing what he says about himself and you're not believing what it says in the word of God about who you are in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You are in the body of believers, which is called the church, the worldwide church. It was a couple of months ago that Paul Scott up the back there shared this handout and it's entitled, Who I Am in Christ. And there are many, many, many references from the Bible which encourage you to learn about who you really are from God's perspective. Doesn't it matter that God's perspective uh, should be known to us? Shouldn't we know what God thinks about us? I've got a number of copies here and if you come up to me later, I'm happy to hand them out again. And it's a great little study. You don't have to spend five hours looking up all those verses, but maybe you could look up a couple a day. It'd be a massive encouragement, as it has been to me. Who I am in Christ is very, very important. We need to repent from our state of disappointment. Think instead, 
You've got to replace those thoughts with scripture. And it says in Philippians 4, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We can replace those thoughts and we can learn scripture. And if we went through all of this in a month or a week or a day, we can pick it up again next month, can't we? And really learn who we are in God. Ephesians 1 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. You cannot have your best life now. The best life's the one to come, remember? God has eternal purposes. Let's remember that and let's build up treasure in heaven. This here says patience in suffering. If we're thinking about eternal things, we need to remember what it says in scripture. He saved us and called us for a purpose and that is a holy life. Not because of anything that we have done or because you're anything special that he would choose you and not choose somebody else. That's not how it works. The grace was given, the grace of God was given to us in Jesus before the beginning of time. And 2 Timothy says, And giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. So, folks, rest. Rest. Rest in not knowing. Rest in not having all the answers. He's aware. God already knows. The question is, where is our trust where is our trust? He is looking for the faithful, not the frantic. We're to be filled with hope, not fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Sometimes when we recite that verse to ourselves, perfect love casts out fear, we somehow begin to think that it's something to do with our love. It's got nothing to do with our love. It's got to do with God's love. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. James 4, 17. Patience in suffering. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. When's that? We don't know. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop? patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. Suffering of all kinds leads you to better things. Be thankful. Sometimes it's your attitude that makes all the difference to your circumstances. Your attitude. We need to have an attitude of thankfulness. Psalm 103 verse 2 gives us a clue that we always have a reason to be thankful. And you'll be amazed how much better your life will look when you saturate it with thanksgiving. 
You'll be amazed. Hebrews 10 talks about contentment. And the author there talks about how he's content whether he's got a little or whether he's got a lot. In 1 Timothy it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. I read somewhere that the word contentment is derived from two Latin words and I checked it with my daughter-in-law who's got a degree in Latin. It comes from two words, con, meaning together with, and tenere, to hold. Together with and to hold. When you have trust in God, your mind will hold together so efficiently that you can recover from any disappointment. When you have trust in God, your mind will work so efficiently that together you can recover. If you always remember that God is by your side, you can be content with whatever comes your way. And out of such contentment, great things can happen. Prayer is about developing intimacy with God. That's what God wants. He wants to develop intimacy with you. We spoke, I spoke earlier about my grandfather coming home and just wanting to live out all those things that he mentioned in those letters. What sort of things would he have put in those letters? Surely things like, I just want us to be a family again. I just want us to be a family again. I just want this war to be over and I want to come home. But he had a job to do. Isn't the father saying exactly the same thing? I just want us to be a family again. I can't wait to see you. I can't wait. When we pray, sometimes we say, oh, God doesn't hear me. God doesn't answer my prayers. He's not interested in me. Well, if we're developing intimacy with God, I think the nature of our prayers will change, right? Because sometimes our prayers are just not right. Sometimes the answer that God gives when you send up a prayer is no. The answer is no. This is not for you. Sometimes the answer is slow. God's saying, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're going to be quenching the spirit here. If you tear ahead and you do all these things, it's just going to hurt people. It's going to fail. Slow down. Think about it. Walk with me. Sometimes the answer to God's prayer is, you're not ready, Andrew. You've got to grow. You've got to mature before that's for you. And sometimes his answer is go. Yes, this is right. This is in accordance with my will. This is in accordance with the timing. This is right and he will bless us in that action. So sometimes it's no. We need to understand that that's God. That's his answer. Sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's grow. And sometimes it's go.
Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Circumstances, they're temporary and we're not in control of, anything, of everything anyway. Rejoicing is a choice. When we read in the Bible, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, I say it again, rejoice. That's what the writer writes to believers. It's a choice. How should I respond? Very small, sorry. How should I respond? Well, we need to respond in praise to God. And that's what we've been doing this morning. We've been praising the name of our great God. I need to read that out to you because that is so much smaller than it was on my computer screen, which is just this far away from my head. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Rod said he didn't know when that was. I'm not so sure either. But it's soon. That's what we know. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that's us, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. There's a race marked out for you, for each one of us. But you need to know something about the race. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So stay on track. If we wander, we lose our peace. Can you see that? We need perspective. Stay on track and keep going. We need to recognise that God disciplines those that he loves. He disciplines his children. He doesn't leave us how we are. Don't you love that about God? He doesn't leave us in our mess. He cleans us up and he makes us useful and he makes us ready for heaven. 
His ongoing work in us, in our lives, involves a process called sanctification, that big scary word, sanctification. He's cleaning us up, he's making us like his precious son. And that can be painful. Deuteronomy says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. That's how we can know that we are his children. And speaking of human parents, the writer of Hebrews writes, They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. Certainly not perfect. But in contrast, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. That's the goal, that we may share in his holiness. So, what's holding you down? What's holding you back? Because the scripture says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw it off if it's holding you down? What if it's unforgiveness? What if it's bitterness? What if it's disappointment in your life? Throw it off. Run the race as we encourage one another to run the race with perseverance. And just remember that trouble, and everyone endures trouble, trouble is not punishment, it's training. Isn't that good to know? Trouble in your life is not punishment, it's training. I'd like to pray for each one of us now, and then we'll have another song, hey? Will you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have a brand new perspective, that this is your love letter to us. It's not a book of rules and regulations. Uh, we're not dealing with an angry God, but instead you have sent your son into the world to deal with all the, of the anger of a righteous God to bring us back to yourself. Thank you that Jesus was willing to go all the way to the cross because there was a joy set before him and he could see that joy, the joy of a church. Thank you that he has done all things well and that it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We are right with you because what you have done. Thank you that you are dealing through the generations and you are saving uh, many, many people. People are coming to saving faith. They're responding to the good news of the gospel and we want to be your agents as we too go out into the world after today and share with those that we have previously held apprehensions about sharing with. Give us boldness, Lord. Give us confidence to talk to people, even people that we're familiar with, that they need a saviour. Get them to rethink, Lord. Help us to have those conversations as we give you thanks and praise in our Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.